We're continuing the uh, section about uh, Tudong, the wandering through the countryside and living on arms and resorting to remote, uh, quiet places. Lumpur gave detailed instructions on how to minimize the dangers from human and, and non-human beings. He suggested that in areas populated by wild animals, such as tigers and elephants, it would be better to avoid eating meat, as the subtle odor emitted from the body after meat eating could provoke attack. If a monk did come face to face with a wild creature, he should simply keep still, and in most cases, the creature would simply go its way. If it did not, then evasive measures would have to be taken. Ajahn Jan took to heart Lumpur's advice on how to deal with dangerous animals. This is Lumpur Jan speaking. He said that if an animal, say a wild bull, means to harm you, then it will usually lower its head, but it can't get very low. So if you can't get away, then duck down below its horns and away to one side. Or try opening your glot, the big umbrella, to, to make you look big. <laughs> if the animal is startled by that, it'll run away. If there's a ditch nearby, then go down into it. The bull will be unable to gore you properly down there. When bulls are about to butt, they shut their eyes. If your mind is really firm, then stand your ground, and as it runs in, then at the last moment, move away at a slight angle. <laughs> okay, got that? <laughs> but you might not be quick enough. <laughs> it depends on your strength of mind and agility. Lumpur also explained the protocols for staying in caves. Those in which monks with bad sila had stayed in the past should be avoided. The monk should make clear his pure intentions before entering, as described by Ajahn Jan. Lumpur said that if there were fierce animals or local spirits or guardian deities in the area, then when you arrived, you should stand at the entrance and make a resolution. I am about to enter this cave. I come as a friend in order to help you to be free of suffering, not as an enemy to do you harm. You should establish your intentions in that way and put any animals or other beings inside at their ease. There's no need to, to doubt or be suspicious of me. I've come here to put forth effort in my meditation, to do good. If you wish to continue living here and share this cave with me, then please do as you wish. Having first made that determination, he said, you should then enter the cave purposefully and with mindfulness. The greatest protection was always morality. Again, this is Lumpur Jan speaking. He said that the most important thing was not to break my precepts, because if I did, something untoward would happen. Mora morality is very important, and you must try to look after it with every breath, every step of the way. If you break your precepts, all kinds of unpleasant things can happen to you. Sometimes it might be stomachache. Sometimes you might rave deliriously in your sleep, have nightmares. Sometimes it might be animals or spirits coming to harm you. So keep reflecting on your morality. Lumpur said that going by yourself can be lonely. Going with a friend is good. Two is a good number. But if three or four go together, it's too much. And it often leads to complications and turmoil. He cautioned me about conflicts with fellow monks and advised me to be patient. If you go with a group of five monks for more than a month or two, there's usually only one or two left by the end. 
The combination of tiredness and harsh surroundings gives rise to arguments about things like the route or a place to rest. Some monks can be forgetful. They leave things behind and have to go back for them, which annoys their friends. There are many problems, particularly with shortages of requisites. To go on Tudang, you need a great deal of patience and endurance. He said that if more than one monk goes to stay in a cremation forest, you should stay well apart. Although if Lumpur himself was one of the group, he would cough every now and then just to encourage you. He always stressed that we shouldn't be hesitant about the practice. It was correct, it was right. Don't be fearful about breaking a leg or crippling yourself. There's no need to fear death. Though uh, um, my experiences of, of going on Tudang, I've usually just gone with, uh, with one other person. Um, once uh, I'd done one trip by myself, just living uh, um, uh, on arms for a, a few days in the southwest of England. But usually I've gone with, uh, with one other person. Um, sometimes another one, uh, one or two people would co- accompany us for a few days. And then um, uh, when I went to Tibet, to, to Mount Kailash, then I was uh, a group of, of six of us, um, plus uh, our trusty guides and porters, so a group of about ten together. But I can certainly echo this um, uh, description here, that uh, as, you, as you go along, um, you know, two is a good number. <laughs> and that... Uh, the um the one of the interesting things when i was planning the um the, my the first tudong i ever did from going from chithurst monastery in west sussex up to harnham in in northumberland it um all of my thoughts before the the journey were about uh, uh what we were going to be taking with us or making my sandals i made a pair of sandals um one of the monks had been a bootmaker before he joined the sangha so he was he taught me how to make uh, the footwear and, and and then thinking about the, the the people that had invited us there was about half a dozen uh, different places we'd been invited to, uh, to go and uh, and it never occurred to me that the relationship between me and my walking companion would be a significant item of the uh, of the trip it just didn't cross my mind but when <laughs> it's strange but true <laughs> it's like getting married to someone and, and forgetting there's actually going to be a person that, that's involved in the marriage apart from you really it was it was extraordinarily stupid i mean uh, uh, it very uh, very quickly um becomes clear that even though you've got a large landscape around you you know effectively that on one level there's a lot of space the thing that fills your attention is your relationship your connection with your walking partner, you know, who wants to go faster than you do, or wants to go slower than you do, or they're feeling energetic and you're feeling tired, or you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're feeling energetic, they're tired, they want to go this way, you want to go that way. And um, so it was uh, uh, very much a revelation that um, even though you can be in a vast landscape, <laughs> you can also be extremely, uh, a very tight experience if there's uh, tension between you and your... Uh, and your uh, walking companion or companions, so that um, does make a, a big difference. And um, and so I, what what you find actually is that along with the other aspects of, of Tudong, one of the really helpful and instructive things is learning to get along with someone. So even though you have a big landscape that you're you're a part of, you're, you're in and you're a part of the landscape, it's also a big exercise in learning how to get along with someone. You know, when they want to walk fast and you want to walk slow. Or, or say um, I've done a lot of walks with with Nick Scott, and he was um, on that first walk with me. And he is a um, I'm I'm a perennial optimist. I tend to be optimistic. He is a kind of hyper optimist. 
So when he would say, oh, it's only another couple of miles, you know, you could, literally you could double it and add a bit more. And say, okay, it's probably five. Yeah, and uh, and you'll be about right <laughs> every time. <laughs> and so um, the uh, uh, or, or that uh, he would always want to to stop and have the meal in a in a nice place, quote unquote, nice place. I was generally content just to sit down on the path wherever we were and didn't need a view or a or a, a, a particular uh, wildlife refuge to be sitting and having our picnic in. But um, they, uh, so that I was um, occasionally called to say, Nick stop, we're stopping here, and just sit down on the, on the path wherever we were, because there was this, um, well, it's, yeah, it's just up, just up ahead, huh, John, just, just up ahead. And uh, that was generally not, that was an optimistic <laughs> assessment, just up ahead, it could easily be another couple of miles, and say, Nick, <laughs> it's already 12.35. <laughs> This is this is up ahead. You stop here. You know. So occasionally I had to get forceful, but um, it's a good exercise in learning to get along with each other and to, to work together, um, like any kind of partnership. And so that um, it wasn't something that I expected, but it's a, it's a very very helpful and instructive. You you learn a lot with that because even though again you've got a big landscape, you're kind of handcuffed together. You know you need each other to to get along and. Um, yeah, there's that uh, sort of compelling um, and sort of necessary quality of working together, finding ways that you can uh, that you can function and uh, recognizing your strengths, recognizing your weaknesses, and looking out for the weaknesses and strengths of, of others. I'm, I'm reminded particularly of Nick. I was, it was just that comment about um, uh, some monks can be forgetful; they leave things behind and have to go back for them. Uh, uh, again, not to, I realize this is being recorded, not to shame my dear, my dear and beloved Tudong companion, but he did tend to leave a sort of trail of, of belongings, not, and not just sort of debris, but uh, he was quite, quite tidy in terms of not leaving rubbish, but he would leave like his waistcoat or his Swiss army knife or uh, cooking pot or uh, <laughs> kinds of things would be left behind, sort of, uh, or uh, something, uh, drying, you know, a t-shirt hanging on a, hanging on a bush to dry and so I, I was regularly either pointing them out or just picking them up and carrying them with me and then waiting until he was looking for it and saying, where's my waistcoat? <laughs> so, uh, so that, so it's, um, yeah, uh, uh, that sense of um, working with each other, kind of recognizing each other's dispositions and strengths and weaknesses and, and working together is a, a really good part of that exercise. The um, practice of uh, going to a cremation ground, that was um, similarly, um, that uh, Lumpur Cha really encouraged that if you were going to go to a burning ground, that you should sit out, out of sight of each, of each other. Um, and so that uh, when, uh, also when, the, uh, I think when um, uh, Ajahn Sujito was on Tudong for a while with, uh, with Ajahn Goesoko, not the Czech Goesoko, Japanese Goesoko, and they were in, I think it was um, Kauyai, uh, or it was a, a forest where there were, there were wild tigers around. Then Ajahn um, uh, said, oh, we should, we should make sure we sit far apart so that we get, you really get the fear going. It's, it kind of spoils it if you're too close. It kind of gives you this full sense of security. So we should, we should be a, a good, at least 100 meters apart from each other so that you really get the, get the feeling. And so Ajahn said, okay. <laughs> so he... Um, 
and in his own accounts of of, of being on Tudong, the, the very um, graphic descriptions of um, being uh, imagining being eaten by a particular tiger. Also, Ajahn Goetzko is saying, "Oh, um, <coughs> it's only the old sick ones that, that go for a human being. If they're if they're young and healthy, they they generally avoid us." And so, of course, Ajahn Sujita imagines a, a, a an old sick tiger <laughs> coming for him, and uh, and also Ajahn Goetzko said, "Oh, yeah, and they um, they they leave the ears for some reason. They don't like our ears, so that if they if they eat your head, then uh, the ears will be left behind." <laughs> And Ajahn Sujita used to wear glasses at that time, so he said this mental image of this pair of glasses with, a, with an ear on either side, <laughs> sort of left in this uh, glade in the forest. So, okay, well, send my ears back to my mum, you know. Take my ears and my spectacles, put them in an envelope and send them, send them back to England. So uh, I think the... Um, uh, I think it's the, in the, the, the book Seeing the Way, there's a, a, a piece that he wrote, Ajahn Sajito wrote, called Guan Yin and the Noble Elephant. And I think he, if I remember correctly, he describes uh, those Tudong experiences in that. So that, that's, if you're looking for something to, to look at other than your own mind, you can <laughs> take a look at that. It's in See, Seeing the Way, Volume 1, I believe. Guan Yin and the Noble Elephant. That's right, yeah, well, that, that's generally, especially in the West, it's far more, the people are, are far more uh, troublesome and difficult. And um, yeah, and also when people are afraid of ghosts, they say, "Well, it's not the ghosts that are the problem; it's the humans." That the, 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 uh, the difficulty. Also, maybe not even if people are, are aggressive, just uh, just will want to be around. So, one of them, um, again, Ajahn, one of Ajahn Sajito's uh, very memorable descriptions when he was on the Tudong, again with Mick Scott in in India, they were walking on uh, uh, about a thousand mile walk around the um, Buddhist holy places in, in northeast India and uh, he's describing how sort of walking along a, you know, a lonely country country road and it's sort of getting towards midday and the weather's getting uh, the, the day's getting pretty hot the weather is is really uh, <coughs> quite sort of uh, intense the bright sunshine and so spotting a nice shady tree away from the road going oh and then looking around to see and it's, uh, there's um there's nobody around, so then ducking off the the road to go and and uh, take a uh, a nap, stretch stretch out under the shade of a tree for a little while, and then he said, that, but even though there was nobody in sight on the road and no villages nearby, sure enough, within two or three minutes of lying down, uh, half a dozen people from the village would come along to quote unquote help you with your nap. <laughs> <laughs> so that. Um, it was a, a very memorable phrase. If you can follow that, those of you who are not English speakers might not get the full tone of that. It's like, you don't need help to have a nap, and company is not, uh, is not useful. But that was his, his expression. Like people come along and help you with your nap. And in, in India, just the people are very, uh, very comfortable just with looking at you because you're a strange and unusual thing. They don't want to say anything. They just want to look. So that if you say, hello, can I help you? Like, what are you talking to me for? I just want to look at you. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's, it's really, it's like a culturally, that's totally ordinary and quite, quite uh, 
people are quite comfortable. Oh, you're an, you're an unusual thing. <laughs> they just want to look at you, that's all. They don't want, to, they don't want anything from you. They just want to look, because you're strange. And you just showed up in their space. So why shouldn't they look at you? <laughs> you, know, you're, you walked into their world, and so, oh, you know, you're odd. <laughs> so anyway, um, sometimes that uh, the human presence is, uh, prevent, uh, presents other learning opportunities. So to continue. Monks would often visit forest monasteries during their too long walk. Again, this is Lumpur Jan speaking. Lumpur cautioned us that it was important when entering into the company of other groups of monks not to be conceited or attached to conventions. The main criterion for choosing places to stay on Tudong was seclusion. After a few days in one spot, lay people would often start to come to visit and the advantages to meditation would be lost. And again, Lumpur is speaking. You may start... Oh, sorry. Yeah, Lumpur is speaking. You may start getting offered good food. The place is beautiful and it's comfortable. And you can get attached to these things. That's why it's good to move on after three days or seven days at the most. You don't go on too long for comfort and pleasure and good food. You go for the benefit to your practice. Don't stay long enough to give rise to a sense of loss when you leave. If you stay longer, attachments to lay people can arise. Tudong was to wear away defilements, not to accumulate new ones. Monks should constantly be monitoring their feelings towards their surroundings. Again, Lumpur Jan is speaking. If you're somewhere and you don't like it, and suddenly you have to leave today, right now, or if you like it and you want to stay for a long time, then it means that you're following craving and desire. Lumpur told us that we shouldn't go sightsee. He told us to look at the inner sights instead. He said, you don't need to go and visit a lot of teachers. Go and stay in cremation forests. Maintain your practice of chanting and bowing in such places. Be restrained. Don't stay anywhere for long or you'll form attachments to the lay people. He said that if you speak to lay people, you should take into account their level of understanding. Don't be contentious or aggressive. He warned us about people coming to ask for lottery numbers. He said, tell them you don't know and that you'll give them something better, the principles of practice. If they pester you and you can't get away from them, then teach about practice, the five and eight precepts. And let them come up with the numbers themselves. <laughs> Examine people's characters. They may be dangerous to you, but on the other hand, they may have previously looked after monks. Then they'll come and attend to you. In the night time, they'll bring their families to take the precepts, and on observance day, they'll come to take the eight precepts. He gave advice on how to deal with questions that might get asked. He said that if people come and ask you about levels of absorption and enlightenment, then tell them that you're not interested in that way of talking. Our way of practice comes down to whether you can abandon greed, hatred and delusion. Are you grasping at material things? If someone abuses you, do you get angry? As for different absorptions, our teachers don't use those terms. They teach you to watch your mind, and by doing so, free yourself from Mara's snare. So the, uh, the lottery numbers thing, that might be, seem a bit um, remote for us in the West. This is not a, a, a big thing. Um, and also, it, they're generally in the, the Western way that lotteries work, you can't, you can't pick your, the numbers that you, uh, you get. You just buy a scratch card or a lottery card and it's got the numbers on it. Uh, you can't select particular numbers. But in, in Thailand, uh, the way the, the national lottery works, I think local lotteries as well, is you can choose the numbers that you, that you like. And so one of the, um, 
the the things. Lumpur Cha was very anti-superstition and also anti um, the, this um, sort of giving of seeking of lottery numbers um, by by lay people, and so he was very much against that. Um, and so uh, I don't know if I, I mentioned the story uh, before, but uh, when it was uh, Lumpur Sumato's birthday, uh, he uh, he arrived at Wat Bapong when he was I think about. Um, 32 years old something like that in 1966 yeah he was thir- uh, he was 32 years old born in 1934 and um, so uh, he'd been there a few years and so uh, he uh, it was his 35th birthday and Lumpur said uh, Lumpur Chan said to him Sumedho it's your birthday today you know, I invite you to give a Dhamma talk tonight so he uh, got up onto the Dhamma seat that evening and said uh, I'm 35 years old today, and I'll probably live another 35 years. You know, as we, uh, the, the uh, three score years and ten. You know, it says in the Bible is the average lifespan 70 years. So he made that comment. This is a way of beginning the Dhamma talk. I'm 35 years old. I'm 35 today. I'll probably never live another 35 years. So, okay, threes and fives, right? And so they people went out and bought lottery tickets with threes and fives, and and they came in as a as a big winner. So then, uh, oh, Sumedho gives really good numbers. And, uh, became a, 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 a common uh, a rumor going around the local villages. And so uh, that reached uh, Lumpur, uh, Lumpur Cha and said, Sumedho, don't do that. <laughs> do, do what? He said, well, you, 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 maybe you forgot or maybe you didn't realize it, but you know, people, when you mention numbers in Dhamma talks, often that's a, you know, monks are not supposed to give out numbers, but often they, they, they happen to mention certain numbers. And that, uh, and then you people get a reputation for giving good numbers. So be be cautious if you use numbers in, in your dhamma talks. So Lumpur Cha was famous for um, for not giving lottery numbers. And uh, uh, but uh, I think when I was talking about the funeral, uh, I'm, uh, at the uh, at the very beginning of the of the retreat, the um, uh, the funeral took place on the sixteenth of January. Lumpur Cha had died on the sixteenth of January. The the uh, uh, the stupa had 16 pillars inside, the, and the stupa was 32 meters tall and with a 16 meter deep foundation. And so, people in Ubon bought lots and lots of tickets with ones and sixes and sixteens. And the ones and sixties, ones and, and sixes, cleaned up in the lottery. And so, the local uh, U- uh, Ubon newspaper had this uh, front page headline: you know, "Lumpur Cha's last gift to his disciples." Finally, they got a number from him. And that, uh, and that apparently a couple of local bookmakers went bankrupt uh, on account of uh, everyone uh, buying the same numbers, and those numbers came up. There is another story of when uh, when uh, Lumpur Chao gave a, a lottery number, and uh, it was um, one of the uh, the very dedicated uh, uh, disciples of Wapapong came along uh, one day, and he was he was very nervous, very anxious, and was kind of. Quivering uh, with his hands in Anjali, you know, say, oh, well, you know Lumpur, Lumpur, I've got something, something very difficult to ask you. And Lumpur, you know, what is it? <laughs> what is it? He said, oh, I, know, I know this is really against your policy, Lumpur, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, my family's really in trouble. You know, I've got, yeah, <clears throat> my, um, I've got two children in hospital, and they need these operations, and we haven't got any money to pay for it, and. And uh, you know, I've asked all my relatives, and no one's got any cash. And you know, this is things are, are really difficult. I, mean, I just, you know, 
can you just once, please, just just one time, can you can you give me a lottery number? And uh, and and uh, Long Paul said, not today. Come come back on the thirty first, <laughs> which is about four or five days time. Yeah. Come back on the thirty first, and I'll give you a number. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, Long Paul, thank you so much. That's so helpful. Wow, he's going to give me a number. This is great. This is amazing. So, oh, so happy. So he came back on the 31st and uh, Lumpur is just looking straight through him and he's trying to come on. Okay, well, he obviously Lumpur is waiting until no one else is around so he's kind of hovering about and trying to get close and, and Lumpur is just looking straight through him or straight past him and not seeing him and, and uh, he's around all day long trying to get Lumpur's attention and, and trying to get a, get a response from him and, and Lumpur just kind of ignores him completely and so he's like, well, he's seen me, he's seen me, like, and there's, there was nobody around. Why didn't he say something? He's a liar. He's, he shouldn't have done that. Why did he tell me he was going to give me a number then he doesn't give me a number? I'm really upset. And it's really, how could he do that to me? That's really unfair. Lumpur's really a bad Ajahn. And so then, um, he sort of, by the end of the day, he kind of stomps off. And, and then um, the, the lottery is, is drawn a couple of days later. And of course, 31 is the... the the big winning number. <laughs> the kind of, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. <laughs> so that was the one time Lumpur actually did give a number, but the, the recipient didn't, uh, didn't get the didn't get the message. Uh, and this, uh, thus have I heard anyway. That's a, whether that's a, an accurate re- uh, rendition, but uh, it's a, that's how I heard it. Lumpur said that monks go on Tudang, uh, that monks on Tudang could spread the Dhamma through the quality of their sense restraint. Sometimes their deportment could so inspire those who saw them that it might lead them to request teachings. He told the story of how Venerable Sariputta, while still a member of another sect, saw the Arahant Venerable Asaji on his arms round. The colour of Venerable Asaji's robe was sober. He seemed much more composed in his movements than members of other sects. He walked peacefully, neither too fast nor too slow, but alert to his every movement and the environment he was walking through. Venerable Sariputta became inspired and approached him. As a result of the short teaching he received from Venerable Asaji, Venerable Sariputta realised stream entry and subsequently became one of the two great disciples. Lumpur said that on Tudong you see things you've never seen before, hear things you've never heard before, and get to know things you never knew before. With wisdom and self-restraint, every experience on Tudong could be beneficial, both to yourself and others. So that's uh, very true. Um, going back to Ajahn Sujito, um, does uh, use him as an example, um, his first contact with the Sangha was when he was a sort of travelling hippie in uh, Chiang Mai, <coughs> And he said he was uh, uh, early one morning. He was sitting in a little uh, roadside cafe uh, up on the veranda, and uh, he saw a line of monks coming down the the the, uh, the road below the below the cafe um, early in the morning on their arms round, and uh, he. Uh, and he'd, he'd, had a, he'd been staying in India for quite a long time, quite a, quite a few months, and had got really sick there and had come to Thailand to try and recover. The, the, generally the health and uh, 
the level of well-being is, is much higher in Thailand, less illnesses and diseases and the food is better. So he come to Thailand to recover a bit and he said that that sight of the line of, uh, of, of the yellow robes coming down the, the road early in the morning, he just said something completely wordless. His, his heart just sort of took flight like a uh, like a bird uh, launching into the into the sunrise. He said it was just this extraordinary feeling. He, he knew nothing much about Buddhism. He had no particular interest in in um, in being a monk. But just that that sight, what they call the um, uh, the fourth heavenly messenger, had that extraordinarily powerful uh, impact on him. And then um, that sort of really uh, uh, sort of caught his attention. And then a little while later, maybe even the same day, I'm not sure, um, he saw a notice saying, yeah, meditation, yes, Buddhist monastery, <laughs> your class is in English. And he thought, oh, okay, I'll go to that. And then that led to his, uh, his uh, uh, say, contact with, with, with Dhamma and then entering in the Sangha not long after. Also, um, the, the story of how uh, the Emperor Ashoka became uh, a disciple of the Buddha was um, through seeing a, a, a young novice uh, again walking on uh, uh, on arms round down through the, the the streets of Pataliputta. So uh, the Emperor Ashoka had been a, a warrior, had apparently killed ninety nine of his brothers in order to take the throne, and then had proceeded to conquer most of India, and had sort of established himself as a sort of supreme ruler. But in the the last battle that he had in uh, was now the state of Orissa, which was called Kalinga in those days. Then, at the uh, at the end of this this battle, that was the last holdout of of northern and central India, uh, so the last territory that for him to conquer. And he just won this battle with thousands and thousands of of soldiers slaughtered and you know, dying uh, dying on the battlefield. So he, uh, at the end of the battle, he was washing his sword in the river. Um, uh, at the edge of the battlefield, um, this is a, a place called Dalgiri. They have a there's a peace pagoda, and a, one of the Ashokan edicts, a rock edict, is is there. And he was washing his sword, cleaning the blood off his sword in the river, and this this yogi, this rishi, um, uh, was was there by the riverside as well. And the the rishi just said to him, "You have you know how to take life, but you have absolutely no idea how to give it," and then walked off. So it's pretty. Uh, brave saying that to a guy who just <laughs> was a, 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 not only a warrior noble king but also who just killed hundreds of, uh, been involved in killing hundreds of people in this battle but the the effect of that was was very powerful because it's kind of the end of his campaign it was like the last battle he had to fight and then according to the story then uh, Ashoka heard that and then he looked around him and, and then suddenly the the sound all the the sounds of the battlefield the groans of the dying and the the th thousands and thousands of dead and mis dismembered, mass and mangled bodies around him, so it hit him like a like a tsunami. And he was was shocked at how uh, he'd been just obsessed with his conquest and his his uh, military campaigns, and how um, that was the thing that sort of pushed him into a spiritual search. So he uh, he started to to try and find a a teacher and different spiritual uh, forms of guidance. So he had established his capital at what's now Patna, called Pataliputta in those days, and uh, 
he had met various teachers, rishis and uh, and uh, acharyas of various different kinds, different different religious expressions, but uh, he hadn't really committed to any one particular uh, group or teacher. And then he saw this uh, from the the window of his palace. He saw this seven year old novice walking along the street uh, on his arms round, and exactly the same way the, he was struck by this the demeanour, the how this little boy in his robes, the shaved head was extraordinarily composed, very very peaceful and and just ease uh, easy in his walking and. Um, as he said, uh, neither too fast nor too slow, but alert to every movement and the environment he was walking through. And so Ashoka said, wow, that's just a little boy. Where does he, where does he learn to be like that? Or what, what, what's his background? Or who's, uh, who's his teacher? So he asked the um, uh, palace staff to say, go, go, go down and get that, get that little, that little, uh, no, uh, that little, uh, Wanderer, that uh, summoner, you know, invite him up here, and so the the young novice was invited into the the throne room. And uh, I guess the the way that the throne room was set up, where there was the there was Ashoka's throne in the middle, and the, otherwise there were no other seats. It was just like a, an open floor with with, uh, with the um, the throne being the one place for the king to sit. And so then Ashoka welcomed him in, and uh, and. Uh, Said, um, you know, I uh, I know you're just a young child, but uh, you're very composed. You're very peaceful. I'm impressed by your uh, your kind of your demeanor. Um, what is your uh, what is your teaching? Who is your your teacher? What is the the dhamma that you you practice? And so then the novice apparently looked around, and rather like the rishi on the battlefield was quite courageous. The novice looked around and thought, well, he's asking me to teach him the dhamma. There's only one seat available, so I should I should get up onto the seat to teach because the Dhamma is the, the, the highest thing in the world so therefore it belongs in the highest place you have to t- you know, to teach from the, the highest place in the room and so that everyone else should be, so be sitting lower so he just climbed up onto the throne and started giving a Dhamma talk and so, so the, uh, the emperor uh, seeing this it was this kind of outrageous behavior from this young kid and said what do you, what do you think you're doing and then the, the, the young novice uh, said uh, well, Your Majesty, um, you invited me to teach the Dhamma, and the Dhamma is that which is uh, highest and noblest in the world. So it's appropriate that it is spoken from the the highest place in, in the room. And so, um, having asked me to teach the Dhamma, this is why I'm taking the the, the seat uh, because that's the only respectful way for the Dhamma to be taught. So, and was again so sort of composed and straightforward and and easy in his expression. The king thought. This is no ordinary child, <laughs> and uh, okay, well, this this is imp- this is impressive, uh, and I'll I'll go along with this for a while, and so then he listened to the dhamma talk that the young novice gave, and was uh, was very very impressed and thought, well, this is this is wonderful teachings, and you're you're an extraordinary person, and then the the novice said, well, you don't don't be too impressed with me, you know, you want to uh, meet my teachers, they they live at this uh, this place you know, outside of of uh, Pataliputta, and so um, if you want to receive teachings from my elders, from my teachers, then you should invite them here. So then um, that uh, uh, that came about, and Ashoka received the, the Acharyas. I forget the names of them, but they're also there, and the, the names are kept in the in the records. And um, so he asked, uh, he heard the teachings, and asked to become a disciple. So from that time, he was 
a disciple of the, became a, a lay disciple of the Buddha and the supporter of the of the Buddhist Buddhist community of the Sangha. But he also um, uh, always uh, looked out for supporting other spiritual teachings, uh, other other teachers and groups that he felt were in accord with Dhamma. But his own commitment was to the uh, the Dhamma teachings of, to the Triple Gem from that time on. Any questions, thoughts? The next section is called Medicines. Tudong monks like to seek out secluded places to practice, but places that are far from the hustle and bustle of the world are also far from modern conveniences, and most crucially, they may be, they may be hours from the closest hospital. Thus, it is important for Tudong monks to have a knowledge of herbal medicines so as to be able to make use of the things nature gives freely to treat their illnesses. In a memoir, Ajahn Dilok wrote, Lumpur once told the Sangha that before going on Tudong, he would finely pound somlom leaves together with salt and then pack the mixture tightly into a length of bamboo and roast it, which would leave a dried stick within the bamboo. When he wanted to eat some, he'd dig it out of the tube with a knife. He said that if you have no tonic to drink in the afternoon, then you can eat a little of this instead. For malaria, he, rec- he recommended eating neem leaves and about six inches of boropet vine a day as a prophylactic. If you have malaria badly, then you should pound the boropet, extract the sap and drink it. Some people like to cut the boropet into little rings and lightly roast them with salt. Its aroma is as good as coffee. I can attest to that. It's a- it's got a very bitter taste, but if it's if it's roasted, um, there's that sort of offsets the the sharp bitterness, bitterness uh, a little bit. But it is a very it's very good for digestion, and as I said, they, they, uh, it's a, also a good malaria medicine as well. Apparently, Lumpur said he got a lot of his remedies, especially those for snake bites, from his brother Paula. Another medicine that Tudor monks have used successfully to cure snake bite is the one allowed by the Buddha in the Vinaya. In the event of a snake bite, you are allowed to cut living wood, burn it, and mix the wood, the wood ash with urine and excrement. And having strained it, give it to the bitten person. It causes violent vomiting and can eliminate the poison. That's called the, the medicine of four ingredients, I believe. There was an army colonel who heard Lumpur mention this a number of times, and it stuck in his memory. One day he took a group of soldiers on patrol in the jungle, and one of them got bitten by a snake. The colonel remembered Lumpur's words. He asked for donations of excrement and urine. They were mixed together and forced down the man's throat. At that point, his jaw was already stiff. He went cold and then started to vomit. He survived. The idea of drinking urine might seem repulsive, but in India, its its medicinal value has been recognized since ancient times, and the Buddha allowed the consumption of cow urine for medical purposes. The older generation of Isan Isan Tudong monks, the younger generation are generally not so keen, pickled human urine. They would bury earthenware jars of urine, ginger, lemongrass, galangal and kaffir lime peel, sometimes diluted with water, sometimes not, for months or even years. Then they would filter and boil it with fresh ginger and salt. The resultant brew was considered an excellent remedy for digestive problems. And the uh, 
The last section of this chapter is called The Monk. Lumpur spent some 30 years training monastics. It was the main work of his life. He experienced successes and failures, and he learned from both. The standard of practice he established and the goals he set for his disciples were expressed most beautifully by the Buddha himself in the Dhammapada. So this is a variety of different verses uh, in the Dhammapada, um, arranged, chosen and arranged by Ajahn Jayasaro. For the wise monk, these are the first things to cultivate. Sense control, contentment, observance of the Patimoka rules, association with keen friends who lead a pure life. Just as the jasmine sheds its own withered flower, so should you, O monk, cast off lust and hatred. By yourself, censor yourself. By yourself, examine yourself. Thus, self-guarded and mindful too, shall you, monk, live in bliss. Dwelling in the Dhamma, delighting in the Dhamma, investigating the Dhamma, remembering the Dhamma, that monk falls not away from the Dhamma sublime. He who grasps at neither I nor mine, neither in mentality nor materiality, who grieves not for what is not, such a one is indeed called a monk. I'll read that last verse again in case you missed the meaning. He who grasps at neither I nor mine, neither in mentality nor materiality, who grieves not for what is not. So you're not grieving or not um, uh, regretting or being sad about things that, that don't exist. One who grieves not for what is not, such a one is indeed called a monk. So, And then in this, of course, monk uh, is uh, used for all monastics, so you can translate that to be, to be uh, gender non-specific. It's uh, the... Um, the bhikkhu vaga of the uh, Dhammapada, the, uh, the, the kind of ideal of monastic life as uh, described by the Buddha. So any uh, thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. Have you tried the fermented urine? Uh, not fermented, but I regularly uh, use it for when, when I, I've got a cold coming on. Just gargling and also swallowing. Uh, it's pretty effective. It's, uh, also, it's um, uh, it's a good antiseptic if you have a cut uh, to wash a wound with. It's uh, I mean, even though we think of urine as something sort of foul or, or disgusting, it's actually quite reasonable as an antiseptic. And so, soldiers are also trained to use that in in, uh, in sort of battlefield as a sort of battlefield treatment, so that. Uh, and also, if you haven't, if water is, if your water supply is short, <laughs> then that's a, it's a, uh, it also uh, helps to, to, uh, to conserve the the water. If you're in a, again, in a battlefield situation, water supply is, is very limited. Then it's a, a way of cleaning a wound that uh, saves your, conserves your water supply. In the trade, it's known as vitamin P. <laughs> Colloqui colloquially. Known as vitamin P. Any other questions? Just another note. Um, a topical application of urine and then Vaseline cured the worst case of athlete's foot I ever had in Thailand in about two days, uh -huh. which is significantly faster than the marketed antifungal. <laughs>
Okay, the next, uh, uh, the next chapter I will read is called Dying to the World, and this is talking about the nuns' training. It starts off with another um, quotation from the Dhammapada. Those who are ever vigilant, who discipline themselves day and night, and are ever intent upon Nibbana, their defilements fade away. So dying to the world, Mechi training. Some five years after his enlightenment, the Buddha established an order of female monastics known as bhikkhunis. The Theravada branch of this order flourished in India and Sri Lanka before falling into a period of decline and finally becoming extinct around a thousand of the common era. After an illustrious 1500-year history, sorry, it became extinct around 1000 of the year 1000 of the common era after an illustrious 1500-year history. In the light of the Buddha's stipulation that ordination required induction into a pre-existing community of bhikkhunis, revival of the defunct order was deemed impossible. There's no evidence that the bhikkhuni order ever established a significant presence in Southeast Asia. Without a bhikkhuni lineage to perpetuate, the Buddhist cultures of that region eventually saw the emergence of indigenous female renunciant orders. References to white-robed mechi, holy women, in the kingdom of Siam may be found in the 17th century accounts of Dutch and French travellers, at which time they seem to have become a well-established feature of the society. And uh, the, uh, the, the footnote on this uh, says... They listen to sermons every day and they spend much time praying in the temples. Their principal activity is to serve the monks, prepare their food and to supply their needs by continual almsgiving. They visit the poor and the sick and devote themselves assiduously to rendering to their fellow creatures all the good of offices that charity can inspire. They enjoy all the same privileges as the monks and are no less respected. Everybody bows down to them and they bow only to monks and pagodas. They are called Nangchi, which means holy woman. They have a place set aside for them in the pagodas and at the great ceremonies. They are much in demand for the funerals of mandarins. <laughs> I think that means uh, uh, like rich people. Yeah. Uh, to which they go in order as if in a procession and their attendance at these ceremonies is always liberally rewarded. That's from an account written in 1688 by Nicolas Gervais. The Natural and Political History of the Kingdom of Siam. For women with a monastic vocation and an aspiration to realize liberation, the Merchi form is far from ideal. The Merchi's relatively basic moral code, they live by the eight Upasika precepts, means that they cannot draw upon the sophisticated support and protection for their practice that is provided by the Bhikkhuni Vinaya. Mechis are not arms mendicants, and the lack of a tradition directly traceable to the Buddha has meant that their order has never enjoyed the same respect and prestige in society at large as the Bhikkhu Sangha. Nevertheless, over the centuries there seems no doubt that a great many women have led happy and fulfilling lives as Mechis. During the 20th century, a number of them, a number of them most notably Lumpuman's disciple Mechi Gao, gained great renown for their spiritual prowess. Others have excelled in the study of Pali and Abhidhamma. 
The establishment of a national Mechi organization in the 1960s, together with advances in Mechi education and training over the past decades, have done much to raise standards throughout the country, the country of Thailand. Over the past several years, an international movement to revive the Bhikkhuni order has gathered pace with a new generation of scholars asserting that there are legitimate grounds on which the traditional objections to revival may be dismissed. These arguments have not, however, been considered convincing enough by the elders of the Thai Bhikkhu Sangha to sanction any change in their opposition to the movement, and as yet no strong lobby has emerged to persuade it to change its mind. At present, the form that female monasticism in Thailand will take in future decades is difficult to predict. So uh, this uh, disciple of uh, Lumpur Man Mechi Gao, she is very highly uh, respected. When we went to uh, Lumpur uh, Lumpur Cha's 100th uh, anniversary, uh, the the uh, um, big gathering that took place at, at Wat Pa Pong um, uh, in, so it was January of uh, two years ago, um, then uh, uh, we one of the things I, I, I did with the with the group was we went to go and pay respects to the um, the stupa where Mechi Gao's relics are, and also the, it's very close to the uh, Lumpur Man's uh, museum and, and his relics. And um, she was uh, you know, very highly regarded. There's also a community of nuns uh, there at Mechi Gao's monastery. We were very very warmly received and uh, had a uh, a. Uh, uh, a very kind of inspiring, gladdening time. There was a couple of the older nuns there had been direct disciples of Mechi Gao and um, had, um, uh, they, were, they were very elderly, but um, it was uh, very touching to be able to meet them and to, to connect with them and to, and also to see that the, um, the community is very kind of strong and, and sustaining itself uh, uh, very well. But she's, uh, regarded as an arahant nun uh, in Thailand, and her, the relics uh, that she left behind are very impressive. And uh, if you want to read her life story, then uh, we have copies uh, uh, of that. There's uh, Ajahn uh, Dick Silaratano um, did an English version of her biography, and there's lots of of, um, of, of copies here that are available. And it's a very uh, inspiring read, and the, of the, amongst the photographs, the pictures of her of her relics are quite. Um, Striking the, the kind of um, the uh, sarira, the the kind of jeweled um, remnants that were left behind in her ashes. That her, the, her, when an arahant passes away and they're cremated, then uh, in amongst the ashes and the the bone fragments, they often find these little jewel-like um, sarira or these uh, sort of uh, transformed um, aspects of of the body that are, are then kept and uh, and sort of looked after and cherished and, and respected. So Mechi Gao's, mostly red, uh, so red and purple, pink, kind of a uh, very striking color. And uh, uh, there was a lot of them that were left behind when she was, uh, when she had her cremation. She met uh, Lumpu Man when she was a young girl and uh, was inspired by him. And uh, uh, she wanted to to become uh, a nun at that time, but he said, "Well, you're you know you're too young, but um, and you know, conditions are not right." But uh, here, and he gave her a razor and he said, "Keep this, and when the day comes, then <laughs> you can use this." And so, apparently, she uh, she kept it, and she was uh, uh, like most um, uh, of the people in her village. She was persuaded into a marriage, even though she might not have been particularly interested in it. She got married and. Um, and then uh, was together with her, her husband, 
um, till the, she, she was about 37, uh, and um, finally she was uh, enabled to to, uh, to join the Sangha, so she finally got to use the razor that Ajahn Man had given her, that she carefully uh, carefully put away. And uh, and so then from that time she was um, very, uh, very strongly committed to the, to the practice and to... Uh, to um, the, uh, the 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 teachings of Lumpur Man, and uh, she um, she spent a lot of time at uh, Wat Pabantat, Ajahn, Ajahn Mahabur's monastery, uh, and so she was um, closely connected with him as well. So forest nuns, the first Mechis. Not long after the founding of Wat Pabong, Lumpur Cha gave permission for the establishment <coughs> of a Mechi Mechi community. By doing so, he sought to provide a training within existing norms for women with a monastic vocation which would provide them as much support as possible for their progress along the path to liberation. Lumpur treated the Mechis as forest ascetics. They were expected to live a very frugal life, to get up at three o'clock every morning for a session of chanting and meditation, and to eat only one meal a day, like the monks. Significantly, Lumpur referred to the Mechis as samanas, a term of great respect usually only applied to monks. He encouraged them to constantly remind themselves that they were summoners and to act accordingly. This is Lumpur speaking. Everyone here, monks, novices and mechis, are summoners. Everyone should know, that the duty, should know the duties of a summoner and not get caught up in either of the two extremes of fruitless asceticism or sensual indulgence. Actually, the very first mechi at the Wapapong was his mother. Soon after he had arrived... And, um, and, began, and set up the, um, uh, a place for himself. The villagers came and started to clear a bit of um, space in the forest and to put up uh, kuti for him. And, uh, and not long after, in that, that initial period, which was 1954, then uh, his, uh, his mother uh, came along and said, uh, you know, I want to come and, and practice under your guidance. And so that... Uh, uh, so from very very early on, there was uh, there was a, a women's order there at Wapapong as long as a, a men's order as well as a men's order. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, the vigorous style of practice developed by Lumpur at Wapapong, a sort of take no prisoners campaign against the defilements, extended to the Mechis. They were given no exemptions and shared all the privations of the monks. Privations means all of the difficulties or the the, uh, the physical challenges. Privation means going without something. Mechi Bunyu reminisced. So Mechi Bunyu is one of the, the senior and oldest uh, most um, respected of the uh, the Mechis. So Ajahn Jayasar had interviewed her at length for this book. Mechi Bunyu reminisced. So this is Mechi Bunyu speaking. One of the head, one of the Mechis had stomach pains and headaches. She wanted to go and see a doctor. Lumpur didn't give permission. He said, sit and look at it. Concentrate on the area that hurts. If your head aches, then concentrate on your head until it splits apart. When you've got no head left, there'll be nothing to hurt. <laughs> Duly noted, huh? Yeah, it applies to the monks as well. So. When you've got no head left, there'll be nothing to hurt. That's how it was in those days. We endured to that extent. It was no use crying out to see a doctor. When there was nothing to eat with the sticky rice, we would just dip lumps of rice in salt or fish sauce. Lumpur said, don't get attached to the taste of the food. Don't give it any consideration. 
Look on food as medicine. Eat enough to maintain your body for the coming day. So we taught ourselves that food was just medicine, and we came to truly believe it to be so. We believed in Lumpur's words, and we developed in the Dhamma. Our bodies and minds were light. There were no obstacles throughout the day. It was easy to practice. That's how he taught us, and as a result, we could let go. It was marvellous. Each one of us tried to follow what he taught us, to be tractable and not stubborn in our ways. Lumpur created a unique Vinaya for the Wakbapong Mechis. He supplemented the basic eight precepts, which they received at their ordination, with a number of the ascetic Dutanga practices kept by the monks, and a detailed set of monastic regulations. Although this Vinaya still fell far short of that of the Bhikkhuni, it provided a strong foundation for practice and let the Mechis feel a wholesome pride in themselves as monastics with a distinctive culture and form. There were, nevertheless, many challenges for the Mechis to overcome that the monks were spared. Their duties in the kitchen consisted of activities so closely associated with their former lives that they could easily act as an obstacle to developing a sense of themselves as renunciates. The Mechis' possession of, of small sums of money, usually offered to them by family members and lay supporters for personal needs, also undermined their feeling of having completely left the lay world. But these limitations of the form were generally given little thought by the Mechis. They were grateful for what was being made freely available to them. The chance to train in a monastery under the guidance of a great master. It was a wonderful opportunity, and they tried to make the best of it. The next section is called Debt of Gratitude. A notable feature of the Mechi communities in Isan Forest Monasteries is how often they include the mother and perhaps one or two sisters of the abbot. My sisters have not applied. <laughs> uh, I'm not waiting. It's been 40 years. So. Monks have long sought to express their debt of gratitude to their parents by encouraging them, when widowed and when all their children have grown up, to adopt the monastic life. By this means, they honour the well-known words of the Buddha. Even if one, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, even if one should carry one's mother about on one shoulder and one's father on the other shoulder, and while doing so should live a hundred years, and if one should attend to them by anointing them with salves, by massaging, bathing and rubbing their limbs, they should even void their excrements there. Even by that, one would not do enough for one's parents. One would not repay them. But one who encourages his parents lacking in faith, uh, one who encourages his parents lacking in faith, settles them and establishes them in faith. One who encourages his parents deficient in virtue, settles and establishes them in virtue, encourages his stingy parents, settles and establishes them in generosity. One who encourages his unwise parents settles and establishes them, them settles and establishes them in wisdom. Such a one, O monks, does enough for his parents. He repays them, and more than repays them for what they have done. The spiritual welfare of Lumpur's mother, Mir Pim, was a constant concern to him. During his years as a Tudong monk, his regular visits to his home village were, above all, opportunities to give guidance and instruction to her. It must have been of considerable satisfaction to him that it was she who led the delegation which came to visit him in Amnatchiran in early 1954, bearing a request that he establish a monastery in Papong Forest. It's not known whether Mayor Pim's move into Papong was in response to Lumpur's suggestion or at her own request. 
What is known is that soon after the Sangha was settled in the new monastery, huts were built in the central area near the kitchen for Mayor Pim and two companions. The arrival of the three elderly women did not, however, signal the beginning of the Wapapong Mechi community as such. Although the women kept the eight precepts of the Mechis, they did so informally. At this early stage of development of Wapapong, Lumpur was still finding his way as the leader of a monastic community, unwilling as yet to take on the extra responsibility of establishing and leading a community of nuns. In fact, Lumpur harboured serious misgivings about the whole idea of monks and Mechis living together in the same monastery. A rather exceptional woman made Lumpur change his mind. Pim Utaigon was a 50-year-old villager who became a regular at the monastery on observance day. She was determined to become a Mechi. Lumpur was impressed by her faith and sincerity, but, at first, refused her request for ordination. Then one day he made her a proposition. At the back of the monastery, in the southwest corner, she could have a kuti built and live there. It would mean dwelling alone in an isolated clearing in the middle of a thick forest, generally believed to be haunted. If she could endure it, Lumpur told her, he would ordain her. If she really wanted Wapapong to have a nun's community, then she must start it herself. It was a daunting challenge, not least in light of the debilitating fear of spirits that almost all people of her culture felt in the forest at night. But Pim Utaikon accepted the offer with gratitude and overcame all obstacles in her path with a quiet, unfussed assurance. Pim lived in a small hut built for her by her family. She planted chilies, salad greens and papayas to supplement the arms round rice that the monks sent her every morning. She spent many hours a day practicing sitting and walking meditation. Lumpur became satisfied that she had the qualities that would make her a good senior nun. In 1956, so two years after the monastery had begun, he formally ordained Pim Utaikon. Mayor Pim and the two other older women as Mechis and sorry, he ordained Pim Utaikon, Mayor Pim, his his mother, and the two other older women as Mechis and established a boundary for the new Mechi section covering an area of some 30 acres. A daily schedule was established that closely followed that of the monks. At 3 a.m., 3 a.m., nuns would chant and meditate together. At dawn, they would begin to prepare food from the garden they cultivated for the Sangha's daily meal. After the meal, they would have free time to practice meditation or attend to personal projects until a work period at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, followed by bathing, walking meditation, and the evening session of chanting and meditation. On every observance day, the nuns would practice through the night. So, I'll leave it there for today. It's gone seven o'clock. But, um, that was how the uh, the nuns' community began at uh, at Wapapong. Also, um, the, the um, when uh, the things were being established here in England, um, uh, a, a woman, Pat Stoll, uh, came to Thailand and asked uh, 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 Lumpur Cha if she could be uh, ordained as a, as a nun in England. And um, um, uh, I, was, I was there when she came to visit uh, and st- Thailand and stay at Wat Pananachat. I wasn't there when she actually made the, the request to Lumpur Cha, so I can't speak about it uh, from personal experience. But um, uh, the, uh, uh, apparently what Lumpur said was, yes, you can be a nun, go and ask uh, Sumato and he'll give you the eight precepts. So he uh, uh, he gave permission to her, and so she um, very happily came back and told uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato that Lumpur Chah had given her permission. 
So Lumpur's, mm, okay. And so then uh, uh, around, um, so uh, Pat Stoll had come in uh, 78. Um, uh, end of 78, early 79, she she came to visit. And so then it was in October of 79, then uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha gave the, the eight precepts, the, the, um, the Anagarika precepts, to the first four of them. It was uh, Sister Rochna, who was Pat Stoll, and then Ajahn Sundara, Ajahn Jantasiri, and then uh, ta, uh, Sister Tanisara. There was the four of them. Tanisara disrobed quite a long time ago. Rochna passed away in her robes in India, and um, uh, Ajahn Sundara, Ajahn Jantasiri are still with us. So that was in October of 79 that uh, the Samedha carried out the first eight precept ordination. Okay, do you there for today? <laughs>